0: Take out your Bibles. We're in Acts chapter 12. We're going to read the first 24 verses. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed she ran back without opening it (laughs) and explained, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her when she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. "'Tell James and the brothers about this,' he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter.' After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. And immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, An angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, who was also called Mark. As you prepare for sermons and, and book studies like ours, you draw on all sorts of resources, commentaries, online illustration sources or uh, sermon libraries, things like that. And As I was preparing for this particular study, it surprised me how many focused exclusively on the deliverance of Peter from the jail cell and how if you follow the same plan, you can be liberated from your virtual prisons and captivity as well. In other words, how to find liberation the way Peter did. And that is a horrible abuse of this passage. God does the miraculous. We certainly see that. We have to understand that it's part of a much bigger story. What's missing from the Picture when we just begin with Peter being delivered from death. What's missing? That just before it, James had been put to death. So to come at this and say there's a formula here for doing the right thing suggests that somehow James didn't. And then what about Stephen? (laughs) What about thousands of others? And what about Peter himself who eventually will be arrested and put to death? See, it's not that God does the miraculous that's in question here. Of course he does. But our faith does not earn us the right to expect deliverance. And if we've learned anything from the book of Acts, it's that God works in our lives and through us for his purposes and his glory, sometimes by life and sometimes by death. What this is really about is the foolishness And the futility of fighting God. Because the main character of this story is not Peter. The main character of this story is Herod who sought to be the high and mighty until he confronted the one who is the highest and the almighty. There's so many lessons here. But here is the big picture. I'm going to give it to you now rather than work up to it so that it can help us see our way through the text. You see, all of us either live our lives with God or against God, serving something else. We'd prefer to say I'm either living my life with God or without God, but that's not how God sees it. In fact, Jesus put it this way, those who are not with me are against me. That's how God sees it. You might be saying, well, I don't like that. I don't think of myself as against God. Can I be neutral like Switzerland? <laughs> Can I be neither with God nor against him? I am herewith declaring my neutrality when it comes to God. Here's the problem. Under whose authority are you declaring your neutrality? Your own. The issue is whose authority. In charge. We fight against this because the concept of liberty to us means autonomy. But that isn't the way we were made. Ultimately, all of us serve something. It's necessary in order for us to thrive. That urge in us, that drive to serve, was put there in order for us to serve God. And when we work with him, when we align ourselves with him, Everything, all circumstances work for good. So here's the big point. Those of us who align ourselves as the authority of our lives, those of us that do that, who maintain our authority, that is the path ultimately to our demise. Those of us that are surrendered to God, working with God, all things, all things work to good. Whether it's by death as James experienced, or by continued life, as Peter experienced, whether it's in prison or through liberty, whether it's the miraculous or the mundane. When you live your life in tune with God, that's the path for our good, for His glory, and for our salvation and our hope. That's really the picture here, and what we see is the man who has positioned himself to be the sovereign, not only of himself, but of the land of Israel. As we go through this, we're going to learn three things about why it's foolish to fight against God. You can't challenge God's power, you can't avoid God's punishment, and you can't stop God's purposes, The first section of this story tells us that you can't challenge God's power. Meet Herod Agrippa. We hear the name Herod multiple times throughout the Gospels in the book of Acts. And you might think that this is the same person, but this is actually a family. We'll refer to them as the Herods. The Herods were political animals. They were a political family in an era where it was bloody, bloody and brutal. The patriarch of the Herods, we call Herod the Great. The emperor of Rome referred to him as the king of the Jews, not as a Jew, being put there by Rome. This is how brutal Herod was in securing and maintaining his rule. Among the people that he killed were his wife, his wife's mother, three of his own sons, One of those sons, he killed a mere five days before he died. In his final days, he called a number of the Jewish leaders to his home, and then he had them arrested. And his decree was that when he died, all of those Jewish leaders were to be put to death because he knew he was hated by the Jews. And he figured this was the way that when he died, there would at least be some mourning over his death. Think about that. He is most known. His most barbaric act was the slaughter of Jewish infant boys in and around the town of Bethlehem at the time of the birth of Christ. Why? The wise men came and asked him, where is he who was born? What was the term? King of the Jews. He destroys a generation of young boys. Herod Agrippa is Herod the Great's grandson. His father was one of the sons that Herod the Great killed. He was always on shaky ground his whole reign with Rome. Therefore, keeping in good standing with the Jews was really important to him. And one of the ways to do that was to persecute the Christians. And that's why when we come to this story, we see that that's exactly what Herod does. He reignites the persecution against the Christians. He arrests, among others, James. And James is the first of the apostles to be martyred. In fact, he's the only one in the biblical story to be martyred. But all of them would die a martyr's death. James was the first. And for the Jewish people, this worked. And so emboldened by the success, he arrests another apostle, Peter. He does it during... The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which are the days that follow Passover. Now, this was a very political savvy move because this was the time when the city was packed with people. Maximum political exposure. And he planned on the final day before everybody went home to bring him out and he'd put him to death. He was going to be the finale of the Holy Week. Now, let's look at what's happening around this. We have Peter arrested. He is placed in the equivalent of maximum security. There are four squads of four soldiers. He was chained to two soldiers who were in the cell with him and then two more at the gate. Maybe Herod had heard the previous stories that we saw back in Acts when they were first arrested by the temple guards, And miraculously, they were delivered. Maybe there was a rumor that the apostles are hard to keep arrested. Keep your eye on this guy. And so Herod put him in maximum security. On the other side, there are the church. Verse 5, it says that they are gathered together, earnestly praying for Peter. Not sure what they were praying, but I think the fact that James was killed was a devastating thing for them. Others had died, but none of the apostles yet. It's fair to assume that they were praying for Peter's delivery. But they were praying earnestly. That Greek word earnestly comes from the root word of a muscle that has been fully stretched as far as it can be stretched and exercised. It's the same word that describes Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when it says he prayed as it were drops of blood. These people are praying with all that they have, seeking God together for Peter. What's Peter doing? He's asleep, so soundly asleep that when light shoots into this dark room and the angel shows up, he doesn't wake up. Angels are joyful creatures, right? I think the angel came, saw that his grand entrance did nothing, and the angel just whacked him. Wake up, Peter, you're missing the show. Something miraculous is happening. Why is Peter sleeping? We can only speculate. To sleep that soundly? Reminds me of Jesus in the boat in the storm, the apostles, and Peter himself, one of those disciples so fearful for their lives, and Jesus is just asleep. Why? Because he knows the maker of the storm. I think Peter had seen from Jesus, and he knew he could rest in God's arms no matter how difficult the storm around him was. I, I think that's what we see is this complete trust And then we move into the deliverance of Peter. Let's read it again. Verse six. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off. Then the angel said, put on your clothes and sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Do you picture what's going on here? It's, it's almost like when uh, my mom and dad used to wake us up before sunrise on our first day of vacation. Sort of like Ollie Hop New this Haven of Bliss. Anybody? Anybody? My family. These the only f- people that know that movie. I have this image in my mind of my, my brother in the same room. We shared a room. Standing there asleep. And my mom saying, wake up. Put your shoes on. And my mom helping him put his shoes on. Put your clothes on. Put your coat on. And he's doing it half asleep. I think that's what's going on here. I think the angel's dressing Peter because it says he thinks he's in a dream. And it's not until they walk past the guards, the gate miraculously opens, and they walk a full block into the city. And the angel finally leaves that Peter fully wakes up. Verse 11, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were intended. So we have this tremendous deliverance. All God, all God from first to last. Did he have to do it? No. Didn't do it for James. Didn't do it for Stephen. Didn't do it for hundreds, maybe thousands of others who had been put to death at this point. But he still had work for Peter, and it pleased God. It was according to his will and his purpose to deliver Peter, even as it was according to his will and his purpose to allow James to enter his glory. Peter comes to a sense as he goes to Mary's home The mother of John Mark, who's the writer of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll learn more about Mark uh, in the weeks ahead. This may have been the home where the upper room was, where Jesus was. So it was a known gathering place for Christians. Peter knows to go there. He knocks on the door. Now, what are they doing? They're earnestly in prayer. They're holding up Peter. They're seeking God. Rhoda's so excited she doesn't even bother opening the door. That's funny right there, too. She tells them they don't believe her. Must be his angel. Let me explain that a little bit. There was a tradition at this time, not taught in scripture, but among Jews, that each of us has sort of a doppelganger angel. That's my term for it. The guardian angel that can assume our identity. They superstitiously thought, that's what it's gotta be. Peter's over in prison. And that's why it says, finally, when Peter persisted, they opened the door, and it says, they were astonished. Now think about this. Here was a community of people earnestly in prayer, giving everything they could to prayer, and when God answers, what do they say? No, no, that's not, no, that didn't happen. Let's go easy on them, because I think we're just like them. Let's admit it, God answers our prayers predominantly through the normal, natural occurrences in life, and then we see those circumstances orchestrated in such a way that we see the hand of God, but it's predominantly through God working in the norm. I want to suggest for most Christians, we're more comfortable with that than when God breaks open prison doors miraculously. That we're so used to looking for God in the natural that we forget to expect him in the supernatural. I think in some ways, we did more explaining God away, even while we were preaching the gospel, than we were expecting God to work problem is God doesn't fit in our boxes, even our doctrinal statements. God's bigger than what you can put on paper. I think we can come close. I think we can list a lot of things that scripture says come to consensus on, but God is bigger than your doctrinal statements and mine. And every time you think you've got him figured out and can predict him, listen to me. He's going to disappoint you is going to act in a way that proves that God is God. You don't control him and what he does. Could it be that we've missed the miraculous when we've sought God just because we can't fathom that God would work in that way? That's something to think about because that's what happened to these early Christians even though they had been witness and party to lots of miracles, the greatest of which was the resurrection of our Lord himself. Let's look at Herod's reaction. Verse 18. There was no small commotion among the soldiers. That's probably the understatement of the book of Acts. As to what had become of Peter, and after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Now, here is a man that cannot Even fathom the possibility that God would countermand his authority as king. There wasn't any room in his thinking except to say, someone here is lying. And of course, that's the tradition of the Herods, is it not? Trust no one. And out of that mistrust, he acts in disbelief and kills 16 innocent soldiers. That's tragic. That's a man in rebellion to the supernatural. Let's go on now and pick up the next piece of the story. Secondly, we learn not only can you not challenge God's power, but you can't avoid God's punishment. Let's, let's look what happens to Herod. He goes off. This probably several months later, this event, Josephus, one of the most credible historians of that era in history, speaks about this very event. In a few moments, I'll read you some of his details. He goes to Caesarea, and while he's there, there are those from Tyre and The other cities there that uh, want him to make peace with them because they're dependent on him for food and he's been very angry at them. So they're inclined to do everything they can to appease Herod and they throw a great festival. Herod comes in all of his regalia to give a speech. This is how Josephus puts it. Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. And came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner. Overwhelmed by his splendor, or more likely seeking to flatter him, the people kept crying out, the voice of a god and not of a man. Josephus notes that Herod did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But God's response was swift. Immediately, an angel of the Lord came and God struck him down, it says. According to Josephus, it took multiple days for him to actually die. He was struck down immediately. Chances are, according to the description here, that it was tapeworms. I won't even get into the details I read about that. But God strikes him down. Now, here's the thing. We don't really know if these people thought he talked like a God. We don't know that. He speaks... Divinely, He's not a mere man. He's a god. Where would these ideas come from? Listen, we were in a culture where emperors were called gods. This era that they lived in was a time when men could fancy the possibility of attaining deity. This wasn't something out of the blue. This was them saying to Herod, you are as great as the great. This is Herod the Great. I think it was all a load of baloney. I think they're trying to flatter him. Okay, great outfit, let's admit that. (laughs) And maybe a pretty good speech. But the point here is, Herod's response brings out the truth of his heart. Herod is a kingdom builder. He is seeking to rule He's not looking to worship anyone. He is looking to be worshiped and honored. And so, as is the ultimate plight for all such self-seekers, Herod faces his demise. This is very dramatic, isn't it? This is big. It's like all the miracles in the book of Acts. They're huge, they're profound, especially the ones done at the hands of the apostles. They were bigger. They confirmed the apostolic authority that came with it. And what we've talked about as we've gone through this whole scriptural narrative and reaffirmed in the book of Acts is that the miraculous is not something that we should always count on, but we should always live in expectancy of it. And when it happens, it's a glimpse of eternity So, some die. Some live. Some suffer with illness and malady their whole life, including the Apostle Paul. Some are miraculously delivered. Some live in prison from which they write glorious epistles that bring God's word to the church. Others are miraculously liberated. See, it it doesn't matter. God's in the good for all of it. And when the miraculous shows up, It's because God has such a purpose that the natural course of events need to be countermanded and God will intervene for his purpose and for his glory. And when that happens, it's a glimpse of how everything will someday be when Christ brings about the new heaven and the new earth. But that's not only true of the miraculous healings, it's also true of the miraculous judgments. Ananias and Sapphira, right? And Herod. It's a miraculous image meant to remind us that all of those who live for themselves, not with God, but against God, all of us will eventually face demise. We cannot avoid God's punishment. That's why we need to seek God's mercy. Point three, we can't stop God's purposes. In spite of how hard Herod tried, we see verse 24. The word of God continued to increase and spread. Let's land on this reality. God's purposes will not be thwarted by man's rebellion and man's battling against them. That God will have his way. If there has been any single theme that we see throughout this book of Acts, it's exactly that. No attack of man or demon has kept God's plan to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world and transform the world to be hindered in any way. Let's bring it home as we prepare for communion. No neutral nations in the hearts of men when it comes to God. Christ said, those who are not with me are against me. So in a sense, all of us here, And all people are either Peter's or we're Herod's. And the paths, the trajectories of those two are the same for us. Live for ourselves to our demise. Live for God to life and to meaning. And right in the middle of those two paths stands Jesus Christ. At the crossroads is the cross of Christ through which we surrender our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our rebellion, our desire to live according to our rules instead of God's, to manage and control our own destiny. That's where we surrender all that and through the blood of Christ find forgiveness and come under the beneficent and gracious rule of the one we were created to serve. And that's Christ. And the gospel is really that black and white. So as we come to celebrate the Lord's table today, let's remind ourselves of that. Ultimately, it's a question of who's in charge. Who's in charge? When I come to Jesus Christ as my Savior, it presumes my surrendering to him as Lord. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And just spend a few moments wrestling with who's in charge of your life. And take by faith the lesson today that how you answer that question really determines your eternal trajectory. For those of us that have been followers of Christ, reaffirm that submission to him. Confess those areas in your life over which you still hold authority and give them back to him as you come and take the bread And dip it in the cup and remember the death of our Lord by whose wounds, by whose blood we are healed and we are forgiven. And if you're here today and you can't say you've ever surrendered to Christ, let me tell you, it's the path to life. It's the path to true freedom. And I encourage you to make that even now. And come forward and receive communion as an act of surrendering to Christ as your Savior. Father, as we celebrate the Lord's table, it's a startling passage when we look at the demise of a man who lived in such rebellion. And it's so easy for us to dismiss it as irrelevant to us because it's so extreme. But yet, are we any less rebellious? Are we any less prone to wander, prone to take control and to rebel? Father, teach us, Teach us to surrender to you because in surrendering to you, we find freedom, we find life, we find meaning. Thank you for all of that that was made possible through the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.